Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we speak with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by Trey Robach, who is a developer, investor, and YouTuber who is currently a principal software engineer at GoDaddy. Trey Robach, welcome to Maintainable. Thanks for having me. So as you reflect on your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, well-maintained software code? For me, that primarily comes down to the code is easily readable as a human. It's one of the reasons I've always been so, so in love with Ruby and Rails is the ease of reading the code. Um, and it's very easy to make well-written code that way. And if it's well-written, it's easy to maintain for the most part. Do you think there's an aspect of, you know, as of someone that also appreciates that about Ruby and Rails, it's very expressive. It's almost like plain English a lot of the times. Do you think that helps reduce the need for some level of documentation and that it's self-documenting? I definitely do. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a big documenter. Uh, I generally believe that my code should should be the documentation. What types of documentation do you think do does need to exist, but maybe not on a code level, like in terms of like, this is how this particular method works and what you're expecting, but like, what type of documentation do you think is worth spending time investing in as a team? Yeah, for, for me, the places that I like to spend time on documentation as a team are team processes and communication structures, especially on remote teams, um, as well as like architectural flow diagrams. I think those are really helpful, especially as systems get more and more complex. Do you find that you've come up with good processes over time to keep those well-maintained themselves as far as I've been, in, I've, I've seen many projects where there had been some architecture plans and then there, you would start looking at them and someone would be like, well, that was like maybe a year ago, but I don't know that anyone's updated them. That's no longer reality. Do you find that that's a, a challenge in of itself too? Yep, it always is. And that's that's why I lean on the side of less documentation. If your code can document it, let your code document it because we won't forget to update that. Do you use the term or the metaphor technical debt at all? Yeah, yep. How do you currently kind of perceive it? And how do you think other people maybe mislabel it? Um, for me, technical debt is... You know, as especially as a small small company and product, you you have to make trade-offs, and this happens in in any team. You have to make trade-offs in order to get the thing out the door. You know, if you spent all the time to build the absolute perfect thing every time, it would take too much time, and the business would run out of money. Right? There's a business aspect to everything that we do. So for me, technical debt are those explicit trade-offs. What I try not to do is let non-explicit trade-offs out. That's kind of how I define technical debt is is the trade-offs that we decided that we may need to come back to later. You know, and the other part there as far as developers using technical debt to maybe define something that you wouldn't consider a trade-off necessarily, but maybe something they just disagree with or have you, have you seen te- technical debt be used in maybe an inappropriate way at times? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's I think there's a big need across teams for common best practices and standards. And I think without those, you can you can run into that. You know, one person can have one linter config and the other person can like this other linter config and they both consider it technical debt when the other person linter runs. And that's that's a problem. For me, I have opinions on how it should look, but what my main opinion is is that it's all consistent. Like for me, consistency is key across across multiple apps and products within a team. 
Um, and I agree that it is technical debt once all those things are agreed upon. But when they're not agreed upon, it can't really be technical debt. Do you think that there's an aspect of uh, code, like a distinction between code that's been around for a while that has, hasn't been needed to be changed in, say, several years, maybe being labeled as legacy code? Do you think that's also maybe a, a form of technical debt and that it hasn't been upgraded in a while, but it seems to be working? Or is that if it's, if it's working, is that okay just to kind of leave it as is? I think for me, that goes back to, to the maintenance aspect of it. If I need to maintain it and it's hard to maintain, I'd consider it technical debt. If it's not hard to maintain, then I, I don't know that I would consider it technical debt just because it's old. Are there some certain types of metrics that you would use or is it like it's when you say difficult to maintain, is that it's hard to understand or is it like a, a subjective thing or is there something more tangible like this just tends to take longer to interact with this area of the code or... Yeah, it's a lot more of that uh, when you go in to fix something, are you banging your head against the desk every time or is it relatively simple to get done? So I want to talk a little bit also about, you know, because you come from a startup world and worked on, so, you know, oftentimes I speak of people who are coming into existing organizations where they've reached a level of product market fit and, you know, and they're tending to deal with the artifacts of what the developers from the early era of that software created and sometimes that's not always cleaned up or think you know businesses need to pivot and adapt as you know things and I know that given that you went through you know the entire startup cycle where there was no code probably on day one and then you know you reflect on those days you think you invested too much or too little in helping setting up your future selves for success when it for software development cycle wise? Um, I would say that we, it was a little bit of both. Um, I think we actually did a good amount on, on the code level. Um, there were a lot of things that kind of fall into the technical debt, uh, arena. Like there were frameworks that we were building out, but didn't quite entirely finish that we intended to go back and clean up some more that we didn't end up going back and cleaning up some more. And then as we grew the team, those unfinished things were very unclear and they ended up going in weird directions. And then the place that I don't think I invested enough in as we were growing those companies was on the actual team side of things. Your code can be very easy to understand and build, but if you don't spend the time sort of teaching the the core like philosophies of why you make certain decisions certain ways, um, it's very hard to get a team entirely on the same page. What would you go back and tell yourself differently now in terms of, is it the types of things where you're documenting, you said the philosophy of how you're making decisions or why you're making certain decisions or what about decision? Do you, do you find that it's, you've been able, you were able to find a way to get good at documenting and you know, we we're talking about documentation earlier, but in terms of capturing your decision-making on how you're approaching things from an architecture perspective to share that to future generations of people that'd be working on that project. Yeah, I think the two things that I would lean into a lot more if I was to do it again, one would be pairing. I think the founders should be pairing with the new people on the team frequently. So our very first engineer that we hired at Greenbits, that happened a lot. You know, he he got all of the sort of decision-making things that we need, needed to pass on to all the rest of the people, but as we grew, we were also more and more remote, and that's not something that we had ever ran before. Pairing happened less and less. And then the other thing I would do is 
is encourage more discussion within pull requests. A lot of times a pull request seems to just be this thing that's checked to get it into master, whereas it should a lot more be a comment on a piece of art to use a metaphor there. I think like a lot of times comments on pull requests are sort of looked at as a negative thing. Like, oh man, they think I did it wrong. I'd like to, and I don't have a good answer to this, but figure out a way of building a culture of having productive discussions and conversations along with pull requests. That's interesting. There's, I feel like there's a lot of documentation or articles online you can read and, and guidance around how to review someone else's code and to submit a pull request. But I haven't seen a lot of conversations around how to internalize the feedback you're getting on your code, you know, like that, that, that third step in the process. Like how do you get over that, you know, especially because like, you know, we talk with different types of developers where even here at Planet Oregon where we'll have junior developers that are worried that like it's not a reflection of you. It's not, you know, we're trying to work collectively towards this, you know, ideal approach to having more consistency across our, our, you know, our code base. And it's not necessarily saying it doesn't work, but it's not a question, you know, digging into like some of those, those uncomfortable things for, especially people that are like new into this industry and be like, Oh, am I just a shitty developer? You know, because I got a lot of comments on my, on this pull request or, and there's a lot of back and forth or something. And that can also be a really healthy thing. So how, how, did, how have you navigated helping educate people to get more comfortable with that process. And what do you think are some good traits of responding to a pull request baby in particular? I think there's a lot more onus on the person leaving the comment than the one receiving it. What I, what I see a lot and I've been guilty of this heavily in the early days of Greenbits. One of the biggest things I learned at Greenbits was how to work with people better. Um, is, a simple rephrasing of what you were about to type in a comment and taking the time to think about how it's going to come across and how you would be receiving that same thing makes a massive difference in the conversation direction. If you see something that you think should be done differently and you go in there and say, this should be done this way versus have you thought about doing it this way? Like that's a, it's a massively different reaction that you'll get on the other side of that, especially being as a junior engineer, who's already maybe a little bit insecure that one of the more senior people are commenting on your code. You know, it's, it's interesting because like even that, even then with that example of like, like role playing here, you know, I could, I could still see that also maybe being a thing that like maybe a junior developer might still internalize and be like, no, I didn't think about that. That does that mean I, I'm not thinking things thoroughly enough. You know, it's like uh, you're almost kind of pointing me towards a direction. So I think there's a, I've, I've talked with, with some developers, especially like junior developers where they'll be trying to understand is like, are you, is that a kind of a passive way of telling me that I should do it a different way or, and so how does that get into this weird, how do you, how do you navigate that process of trying to be like, to be also mindful that you're not trying to be prescriptive by asking these questions and, and phrasing it in that way, but I'm not trying to nitpick how you're doing that necessarily, but it's just like, it's interesting. Like how to, how do you decouple that? So you're like, it's a, who should own the direction of that? Is it the, should the senior, someone that's more senior, should you just take that as like a, like if there's junior developers out there listening, they're probably shaking, probably maybe nodding their heads being like, yeah, what do you, what do you want me to do exactly here? Do I do it your way? Is, and that's what you're going to get it so that you approve it or. Yeah, I think it's, it's an interesting, it's a, it's an interesting balance. So there are, 
an infinite number of things we can nitpick in code. Everyone's got their own preferences and this goes back a little bit to standards and conventions and things like that. But I think something that one of the, one of the very, very early pieces of advice uh, that I got in my career, um, because I've always been a very sort of like OCD engineer and I, I thought of it that way and that's the way it needs to be done. Um, one of the very best pieces of advice I got very early in my career is if it's not that impactful of a decision, you don't always have to do it the exact way you think is the best way. Um, and I think that advice going into pull requests is, is very valuable, right? Like where to put a, a line break to make the code more readable or to put it on this line or that line or variable names. Like those are all very inconsequential things in the grand scheme of things. And I think having a discussion around those could make sense depending on the context. Now, if it's like a big thing where you see that and you're like, this is going to take our site down if you release this, there you need to be more prescriptive. Whereas the other, maybe it's a little bit more thought provoking. And whenever I ask those sorts of questions, I try to provide some context and maybe some examples to how I've seen it done. And if it is something that I would approve the pull request with, I would actually comment and approve at the same time. That's true. You could just approve it there too. So, yeah, the, I really like that GitHub gives you those three options where you can approve, you can comment, and you can request changes. For me, it's like three levels of severity. Like when I just comment, it's really a lot more of a question. When I request changes, this has to change before it goes out. And when I approve, it's just something that maybe you can think about or maybe not. Do you find that? It's just, you know, just I'm curious about like what your team's process has been or even maybe where, where you're currently at now. But um, in terms of like reviewing pull requests, do you typically go through the process of pulling down that code and running it? Or are you kind of primarily reviewing it on in, say, GitHub's interface, looking at syntax type things and, and then being like, well, if it, the tests are it's still the build's still good, that's that seems to be good. I'm happy to approve it. Like, when do you decide to like actually go through and poke around the code in your own, say, editor. Yeah, I'm, I have never been one to pull down a pull request and test it unless I get really curious about something. Um, or sometimes if I want to actually, like it's a UI change and I actually want to see what it looks like and they didn't provide screenshots, though generally I, I encourage people to provide screenshots and UI changes. So it doesn't really happen. Most of the time, at least on the teams that I've ran, it's sort of assumed that you you've tested it there's CI that runs actual tests, but you've also clicked through and tested it a bunch of times. You've gone through whatever cases you could think of. And then it's really a lot more of a code and architectural review at the pull request layer that gets shipped. In my in my organizations that I've ran before, generally behind a feature flag, and then we'll push that straight to production and we will test that out in production. So you you mentioned that you you know you were at Greenbits for a number of years. Got a high level. What what is Greenbits? So Greenbits is a cannabis point of sale software. So we both a web app and an iPad based application that help legal cannabis dispensaries actually run their business because there was a big problem and gap in the industry. We got started right alongside of like the recreational legalization path. Um, so we launched alongside in Washington and moved into Oregon. Now, nine to twelve states we're active in. I think so. That, that's that's what that is. That was quite the journey. So, given the nature of that kind of new 
industry that you're part of. It sounds like there's probably a lot of moving parts, especially with regard to state government regulations. I can only imagine that state to state, they're not like it's not like if the, they just said, OK, it's it's legal here now. And, you know, just treat it like any other normal point of sale can speak about that, at least in Oregon. It's 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 complicated. And from what I understand. Was this something that you were anticipating going into the endeavor that, or did you just feel like you ended up getting more complicated the more you dug into that type of business? It was the only thing that made the business make sense because without that compliance and regulation, you just use square. So how did you go about architecting something where you knew you needed to track a lot of different things and plan that out? Um, did the government provide a lot of APIs when they, and things for you to tap into or... Yeah, so it was kind of nice launching alongside Washington. Um, there's, I mean, there's a lot of debate around uh, traceability systems. There's like three in in play right now, and everyone hates everyone, and they're all not good. But we launched with Washington, which was a company named Biotrack, and at the time, I thought their API was the worst API ever, but it's actually, I think, the best API in the space. Um, so that was that was not too bad, but I think there's there's a lot of risk when you're launching a new product to a customer base, right? So one of the pieces of risk for us, the couple of pieces of risk that we have is one, do the apps work and do they solve the problem? Um, and then the other is, can we report the data accurately and effectively to the state governments? For the first problem, Ben, my co-founder, I think you've met him before too, flew to the store that we were launching with and basically acted in the store as like a store manager. It was running all these things. Me and my co-founder, Andrew, took a week off of work because we both still had full-time jobs at the time. And we were literally just coding and pushing new builds to iOS a couple of times a day, fixing all those things. And because we knew that that was a big risk and that's the one that we really need to get right, what we did on the state reporting side is we actually didn't do it. You know, we're saving all of the transactions in our database, but we're not trying to push those to the state. We can catch up on that later. We figured... It's a new thing in a state. They're not going to be coming after you because you didn't report for the first week. And we can just backfill that data as we go. So we made sure that we had all the data collected, but we didn't try and even make that system work. Kind of iterated your way through that process. And then, okay, I guess what's the next thing that we need to tackle here? You know, something I was kind of curious about with that particular industry, were you able to hire people that were work, that worked in different states that were not legal, or is that I know it's like an interesting area of you know federal and state law there in, in the United States. Like, is that a was that an interesting challenge there at all, or is that not really relevant from like a yes in states, not countries? We were not able to hire anyone that was not a U.S. citizen because we talked with a bunch of lawyers about this because that is a a great way to, we were building a remote team and there's a ton of remote developers all around the world and I wanted to hire them, but we couldn't because the visa could potentially get withdrawn from them because of weird stuff. So it was definitely a challenge. Hi there. Do you know someone who might be looking for assistance with their Ruby on Rails application? Planet Argon would love to meet them we're offering a $1,000 referral bonus. Send someone our way, and if they sign up for services with Planet Argon, we'll give them a $1,000 discount. And in return, you'll get a check for $1,000 in the mail, just for knowing the right person. 
Hop on over to planetargon.com referrals for more information and to refer someone our way. That's planetargon.com referrals. Thanks. So thinking more back on the on the technology side of things, as you look back, what were some ineffective ways of keeping your code bases and infrastructure maintained that you saw? You mentioned like the, maybe not investing more in like the people and process things early on. Did you find that there were some useful metrics that you were able to start using to track the health of the of the team and the code base over time? The health of the team and the code base, most of that came down to just talking to people. I think like that was one of the most effective ways that I was able to keep a pulse on things is just constantly talking with people all the time. Um, it's something that I, I still try and do a lot of, even with the team at Greenbits now that I'm not there. Um, I have calls with them every couple of months, random people that I just pick out of a hat, basically. Um, so I think that's that's a big one. Yeah, I think... I'm, I mean, that's that's really the biggest thing that I looked at. And then a lot of the other metrics were a lot more on stability and performance. That's, stability was one of our biggest challenges there at Greenbits. We, we got to the point where some of the maintenance tasks actually got too out of hand on the state reporting side that, I mean, we're still trying to catch up on a lot of those things today. Hmm. Are there any, say, commonly shared best practices in, in like say in the software development community that you have found to maybe not be so valuable? Yeah. Uh, single page apps. Hmm. So for context at Greenbits, we built a single page app and a native iOS app and had a rails API. It seems like it makes sense, but in the past few years I've been building just full end to end rails apps again. And the developer experience is at least 1000% better. And typically the performance is equally as good. It's interesting because I, I know that a lot of people, do you also explore things like, are you a fan of microservices and going down that path? Or are you like the kind of more of the monolith? I was a fan of those at one point. Um, I think like breaking things out into a, a service makes sense. Um, I typically, like the way I'd, I'll typically work at least now is I'll build the whole thing in a Rails app I'll start to segment the code into logical groupings. And if there gets to be a certain point in time where I need to use that section of code for some other entirely separate application that couldn't be put into this Rails app for some reason, then maybe I will. But for the most part, I put it just all in Rails now. What were some of the challenges there with the single page app approach or breaking up? Did you have different teams trying to all collaborate together? and Or is it the the ownership aspect of the different areas or... Yeah, there, there tended to be a lot of overhead to make a change because almost every UI change you made, you had to make an API change too. And that was two different projects. So that was a pain and you had to coordinate that. Another one is just the performance. The performance is just slower um, unless you spend a lot of time having really specific APIs. Most of the time, if you look at a single page app, the app loads and then it loads all this data in JSON format that most of the time the UI that you're trying to look at doesn't really even need. So it ends up loading all this data, making all the database queries, rendering all that on the server side in JSON form and getting back and parsing it and all that stuff for nothing, basically. Whereas in Rails, I just pick the one attribute on the one model that I want and it just renders in HTML. Rails has also made a lot of improvements in the years around like 
Turbo Links and Rails UJS and Stimulus is amazing. I'm a big fan of Stimulus now. Um, so it's made a lot of changes to make sort of that same like smooth user experience that we're trying to get from a single page app possible. Do you think there's an, an argument for companies that are using, say, more JavaScript focused things that that's more of a strategic hiring? I've, I've talked to some people that are say that have said that, well, one of the problems with Ruby or Rails is not maybe enough developers available to hire. So there's an maybe a lot more people that are learning JavaScript, and that's maybe a better long-term hiring path, but not necessarily on a technical level. You know, there could be pros and cons one way or another. I think we can always get into that argument to some degree. And I'm a big fan of Ruby and Rails myself. Yeah, I'm, I'm just curious if you feel like there's more of a, a push because Rails isn't the new shiny object anymore. Yeah, there, I mean. Definitely Rails developers are harder to hire than JavaScript developers. But at one point in time, that was the other way around. Um, you know, it's it's all trend-based. I think if you start hire, if a lot more companies start hiring for Rails people, then these um, code camps will start teaching more Rails. And I think like talking about it more, um, I, you know, I think DHH at Basecamp always does a great job of getting this out. That's, I mean, he was the one that really changed my opinion on a Rails app and got me to try it again. I think more of that out in the world and like I think if people truly felt the productivity boost that you get by working on a full Rails app, for me it's at least just a no-brainer. Yeah. I, I agree with that. I've always curious to watch how it's digging into the Ruby on Rails thing in particular, it's uh we run a survey every two years and we did that this year and looking at the results and people are like people that use rails are big fans of it and there's still people coming but the there's been a slowdown of new adoption i think over the last five six years or so and i sometimes wonder i'm like is that it because there's a lot more options now you know comparable frameworks and different languages and stuff like that but also have has there been a, a lack of the some of that you know you mentioned dhh as an example there you know i don't think he talks about it as much anymore as he used to you know 12 15 years ago to some degree having you know, been around the community for such a long time. There's a lot of the people that were early adopters, I think, tend to be people that are more evangelical about it, I suppose, in some way, uh, about things. And because of that, a lot of the people that were around early on in the community have gone on to start businesses. And now their social media is talking about business-related things, other types of interesting, you know, like, they, you know, they created Shopify or, you know, run Basecamp and Fighting Apple's App Store thing is like a big topic for like DHH or something. So, and I'm always curious, like not making sure that we don't write off Ruby and Rails, but also knowing there's a responsibility for the community to help promote it and to show like, hey, you know, yeah, I've been using for this for a long time, but it's still a relevant, great product. And we, we could take more of that, that share. It's not like a, as you said, it's trend-based. We can influence that. And so this has been something I've been wondering, like how can the community get a little bit more proactive about that instead of, because it's going to help make it easier for us to hire people and to keep working with it and for my company to keep working with it so we don't have to switch over to other frameworks and stuff like that because you know there's, there's a lack of new projects for us to, to deal with there. So I think just continuing to talk about it is is a good start. But I think what really is going to need to happen is when anyone listening here is going to start a new business, use Rails. You know, Rails Rails got its big traction. Um, you know, Basecamp was using it, but it like I know it came onto my radar when Twitter launched. You know, because Twitter was all Rails and it was it was amazing what Rails could do. And I, I went to their first and only Twitter 
Twitter conf. I forget what it was called. San Francisco is my first experience in San Francisco. And that's where I discovered rails. I was like a PHP developer prior to that using cake PHP, which is basically a rails clone in PHP. I learned, um, and I discovered rails and it was, it was amazing. And then you hear about more companies like Shopify starting and using rails and you see their scaling and all of that. And there's, you know, there was this period, I feel like that rails and Ruby were dubbed non-performant, which is, you can pretty much do that with anything, to be honest. Um, and I think that's kind of been debunked fairly heavily now, but the, the, like, uh, the stigma in people's minds is still there. And I think that's something, that's something that the community could definitely help with. Completely agree with that. So as you've likely been involved in hiring other software developers to join your code, um, I think it's a safe assumption. Do you believe that there are different skill sets you need early on in the early era of a code base versus maybe three to five years down the road as the product evolves? Yeah, definitely. There's, there's different types of engineers. There's ones that, that thrive in, in chaos and unknowns. And those are the early engineers. And then there's, there's the ones that, that want to make more small, not like not to belittle the, the effort, but more small strategic changes. Like there's uh, there's very little gets me less excited than A/B testing a UI change, but there's engineers that love doing that and seeing the very small like minor changes and how they can improve the product that way. And that's that's not my style, and that's why I'm more of an early stage engineer. Um, but I definitely think there's two of those, and the transition period is is a challenge. Was that something that you've you found you you realized through the process, like oh we're Maybe we do need to find some people that are going to be comfortable making maybe small, strategic, stable type of changes and not being looking to be like, let's refactor this whole thing and use this new technology or whatever. Did we have that conversation? Yes. And did we decide that? Yes. Should we have? No. I think we did that change too early, actually. And one of our one of our constant struggles is constantly like questioning like why why can't you just like go and do it. Why do, why do you have to talk about it so much and try all these small little things? Like, I think we, I think we thought we were further ahead than we were and continuing to hire more of the startup engineer type would have, would have benefited us a lot more. Interesting. In the sense that it was, things would move quicker or was that just like a skill level thing or is it just the, no, not even a skill level thing. It's actually more, it's almost more of like a risk tolerance thing. I think like early stage startup engineers uh, fit a lot more the, you know, the famous Zuckerberg phrase of move fast and break things, right? Um, obviously, we're not trying to break things, but they're, I think like for me, that phrase has always been like take risks. And that's what I think startup engineers are comfortable doing is taking risks, making big changes, and then seeing what happens and being okay undoing it or deleting the thing you built or iterating from there. Whereas like the further stage people, it's, it's less risk taking because there's a lot more writing on it. Do you think there is any correlation to those early stage earlier, those more risk tolerant uh, developers were also more likely to be early adopters of things versus people or and I'm always curious, like I've seen like an interesting transition with different types of developers that we've hired over the years where we had early adopters for even like Ruby rails and like 
they were constantly like wanting to build new libraries and frameworks and, and or and things and doing a lot of interesting stuff. Um, and then we, at some point we started hiring people that made like a career shift at some point and they weren't like um, say that they didn't previously have this kind of hobbyist developer kind of ethos, but they were like, this is a good career for me and I want a nice stable thing. And this is what I'm looking for. And do you feel like there's any correlation to that type of aspect? I definitely do. And now that you're asking me that question, I'm like rethinking a lot of my interviewing strategy. Um, I think there is definitely like ways that you can see if they are the risk type taking people. I don't think like just early adopters, um, fits the bill. Cause I'm not typically like at least of software, I'm not an early adopter. I have a, my actual co one of my co-founders at, at Greenbits, he upgrades brew update every single day. I do that as minimum as possible because it could possibly break things. But like, for example, I'm a much more high risk, um, investor financially than the average person. So like that level of risk is there for me. So yeah, I think, I think that's, that's interesting thought of like how to, how to tease out risk taking. But I definitely think like one of the biggest red flags for me, I'm probably not going to phrase this in a way that sounds good, but that's okay. Um, if someone asks, um, in the interview, like what's the work life balance like that's typically for me, a red flag for like a startup engineer. And that's not to say that I don't value work life balance. Granted, I wrote a whole blog post about it and, uh, all that, but it's typically a sign of someone that's just wants to do the work they've been told to do and get their paycheck. And in the startup world, you don't get told what work to do. You just do work and you make changes. Um, and that's, like that's a big, that was one of the big issues we struggled with is like, like, why can't they just like take this high level thing and go do it? Whereas it, like, it seemed like it needed a lot more of like, here's exactly what we need to do. Interesting. You know, I think there's like this allure of getting to work in a startup to some degree. I'm, 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 I know that I'm not a startup person for personally. And we work with helping startups over the years. And I admittedly found myself not enjoying working with those types of clients because more often than not, they didn't survive more than a couple of years. So it was more of a feel like we put a lot of energy into things and like we were depending on the business owners to figure out how to sell it. And then that, I think that's changed a lot over the years too, because now there's a lot more you know, even like your, your experience of like where startups will bring in those developers in house immediately, like the co-found technical co-founders versus like say outsourcing to an agency like us. But anyway, but, but aside from that, you know, I think there's this an interesting aspect of there's, there's this allure of shiny thing of like, Ooh, I get to work with that new fun startup, but also wanting to have that work life balance thing is an interesting caveat there. Um, versus say wanting a stable, position at a company that's stable like a, startups are not inherently stable in that early era so the, you know i think the, that work-life balance thing it's like well it's, this isn't a stable business yet we're working we're hoping to be but it's a, but we're like moving quickly and trying to figure stuff out so i think it is an interesting thing to try to filter out or make sure that, that that's aligned and i can also hear people probably listening and thinking well you, you know my life shouldn't just be working on code all the time or thinking about it. I don't think that's what you're advocating for that by any means, but it's a, no, exactly. And honestly, like that's probably one of the biggest things I learned as a manager through my career at green bits was admittedly, a lot of these opinions are, are heavily influenced by DHH. Um, and Jason Freed, I've consumed like almost all their content and it, it's heavily impacted by that. 
Um, it doesn't have to be crazy at work is probably one of the more eye-opening books I've read in the past five years. But I think like one of the, one of the things that startups fall prey to and anyone that I know that goes to work at a startup, I tell them to be cautious of this, but it's like you get options when you join a startup and then the, the owners and founders of the business now hold you to the same standard that they hold themselves because you're an owner of the business, but you're like a 0.01% owner sort of, cause you're not really even an owner because an option isn't owning the company. So I think like for me, I definitely had a lot of much higher expectations of people than I should have. Um, I think in a startup, there's a lot of chaos and there may and likely will be a time when your CEO comes in and says, Hey guys, we have three months of cash left. And like, you want the people that are, that want at least want to keep their jobs and keep working with the same people that they love working with enough to put in extra work to do that. But that doesn't mean a startup should be 80 hours a week. Like I think 40 hours a week is more than enough time. And anyone that's done like real coding for eight hours a day knows eight hours a day is very hard to sustain in like real in-depth coding. And the only reason you'd be spending more hours than that and actually coding would be you have a bunch of nonsense meetings and other things going on. Which can be pretty taxing as well. And Exactly, yeah. Yeah, that's an, it's an interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm having these flashbacks to when uh, back in the early era of when we started and companies reaching out to us and would ask us, uh, you know, how many lines of code do we think this project would take? Or would we be open to being paid for lines of code developed? And I was like, that's, yeah, I don't know where I'm going with that thought there, but the, uh, that's, that's probably worse than being paid by the hour too, right? Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it just, it de- de- definitely doesn't encourage you to want to remove unused code or <laughs> use any sensible, like, no, exactly. It incentivizes you for the wrong thing. Um, I'm a big fan of anytime I'm like, taking like a consulting gig with, with like an early stage company, I'd rather get like a, like a rev or profit share or something like that into my contract, like take a much smaller or no fee on the contract and then get like a rev share. So like I'm actually helping with the business and they're selling more because of the thing I delivered to them. Like for me, that's more of an aligned compensation model than lines of code. I could easily write a lot of lines. uh, There's a value-based pricing there in that there's potential you're taking on some risk and and sharing some of that so it's always been interesting we've had companies contact us as a consulting company and ask us if we would consider doing that and i'm like it's a little different for me to make that decision on behalf of my employees like, i still got to pay them so what's my baseline so i'm like i can't really explore that personally i might be interested in that but then i'm like i can't really subject the team to it to maintain that calmness i suppose that i'm i'm trying to provi- provide stability for them as well so it's it's, it's an interesting balance there kind of pivoting back to the code a little bit. Do you find yourself more often on team rewrite or team refactor? Um, both. So I'm, it's funny cause I'm, I'm in progress on that at two different companies right now. Um, so it's hard to even argue that I'm on team refactor, but, uh, I think there's a certain point where a refactor is an insurmountable task that a rewrite becomes more interesting. Now I have, I have a couple I probably have one successful rewrite story, one in progress and one failed rewrite story. So, so I have all of those. Um, for me, like a big factor is with the successful one, for example, we needed to, it was all old legacy code that not a single person on the team understood. Like I know it best and I've only been there for a year and I didn't take it over 
and I took it over from other teams who took it over from other teams who took it over from other teams. So for me, a rewrite made a lot more sense because there were very, very little to no tests. There was no way to really test it locally very well. So a rewrite makes a lot more sense because the odds of creating a bug in a refactor and a code base like that with the knowledge that I had on it were extremely high. And I think a rewrite was actually a lower risk going that route. We also had to move infrastructures at the same time. We had to move from on-prem to cloud. Um, so that was another thing that went into it. The rewrite that we have that I have in progress that I've yet to know if it's a success or not, it's obviously taking longer than, than you'd hoped. Rewrites will always take like, I don't know, 10 to 100x longer than you think. The company's been around for three to four years. They've learned a lot. Again, it was built by a person who then left that got taken over by another and then another and then another and then to me. So it's a lot of historical items in there next to no tests, no great way to test it. And all the learnings that they've gotten about their product and their customer over the last four years, they would do so many things differently. And the technologies have progressed enough. This is a, we let photographers upload their photos and they can sell them on their gallery. And then we will send prints to the customers is what the product is. Active storage, for example, is a big piece of our infrastructure. And from Rails 5 to Rails 6, you can now use VIPs, which is a lot more efficient. But moving from Rails 5 to Rails 6 on a code base that's high risk already is too difficult. So that's why we moved, decided to do a rewrite there. The failed rewrite was actually GreenBits. We decided to rewrite our register app, which is our iOS app. For similar reasons to the one I just described, we had learned a lot. We decided we didn't want to stick with iOS because going with iOS was one of the worst decisions we made as a business. But we didn't really factor in how much time it would truly take with a team that didn't have all the context like we had talked about before. So that one did not go very well. We did eventually get it done. It's been in progress for like three or four years and it just rolled out. What was the the migration or the rewrite re to? Was that from iOS to like a React Native type thing or? It was an iOS to React Native originally. It ended up being an iOS to Flutter. What advice would you give to people that are kind of weighing up that option right now? I'm like, well, there's some people are thinking like, we should rewrite this because it's complicated and there's maybe a lack of tests and such, but, or maybe they don't have a lot of refactoring skills baked into their team already. And so a rewrite might seem to some degree easier because if I just do it over again, I don't like that. but we also know refactoring is a necessary skill to pick up over time as well. Yeah. I also don't think a rewrite is not refactoring a rewrite for me is like refactoring without something to start with because you're not, you're not thinking up a new product. You're rebuilding the exact same product you have with entirely new components inside. You know, it's like taking the shell of a car and rebuilding everything inside of it. It's really difficult to get it all to fit just right. Um, I think generally, generally my approach now is if I can do it with a refactor, I will. Um, especially if there's like time and business concerns behind it. You know, if you have all the time in the world, it's really fun to rewrite something. We'll be back with our interview with Trey in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you for making time to listen to the Maintainable Software Podcast. Are you finding these conversations valuable? Please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and a writing review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Also, do you know someone in the industry that I should be interviewing on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. 
And now, back to our interview with Trey Robach. So let's imagine that there's a few developers, for my sake, listening to this episode, and they've been at their company for a few years now and don't feel like their concerns, let's say, about the long-term health of their code base have been heard. They've been advocating to the product owners about, like, hey, we need to clean up these areas or improve the test suite, upgrade the framework because we're five years behind on something, but I've heard not right now, maybe later, maybe a few too many times, and they're starting to feel like it's no longer worth asking. What advice would you give them on how to take some action today outside of, say, look for a new job? I would just start doing it. I'm a, I'm a ask forgiveness, not permission sort of person. I think most technical debt, you can you can squeeze that into tickets. Just take longer on your tickets. You know, I like to say, like, what's the worst that's going to happen? They're going to fire me? At big companies, it's going to be like a six-month process with this, like, performance review and all this other stuff that, like, you'll get a heads up and just stop doing it at that point. But, you know, I think, like, if it's truly going to help the team and help you move faster, it's worth it. They just might not see it now. Like, his... I've, I don't think I've ever worked with a product owner that said, yes, let's prioritize technical debt. Like it, it just doesn't happen for me. I think, you know, I'm a lot more of the, uh, leave the campsite cleaner than you left it sort of mindset. Like I'd rather a story take two times as long and me like be happy with the art I produced than just get the ticket done. That's some good, I think that's some good advice there. And do you think some of your more, Speaking to an earlier point about you being more risk tolerant plays a factor into that. One hundred percent, yeah. I mean, I've I had people on my team at Greenbits that I gave that sort of advice to, and it still didn't happen. And that's because like there's this there's this horrible this horrible pressure put on engineering teams. This is one of the big reasons I've I've been a lot more of a fan of the shape up methodology of building product now than I am on Agile because I feel like Agile's been sort of like coerced into this into this way of setting like really tight and very fake deadlines on engineering teams to get them to quote unquote produce more faster um so like everyone's worried about hitting these deadlines and i would continually have one-on-ones with people and they'd say and i'd say like well why aren't you fixing that thing and they'd say well we got to hit this deadline and I, I would always say, well, did Ben, the CEO, say that this is a hard deadline and that we would lose a customer or business because of this deadline? And they're like, no. I'm like, then it's not a deadline. Like, it's just a goal. And goals can be moved. And I think there's that. You think there's also that the counter to that being if if goals no longer, we, we no longer aim for them, then they become more meaningless as, over time as well. You can kind of get... Definitely. You still have to have goals. That's, that's why I really like the shape up process because the goal is six week out, six weeks out. It's a, it's a tangible thing and you're given high level latitude to solve the problem and they don't say move the deadline. They say shrink the scope, which is something that we don't do enough as an engineering, as a product engineering team. Typically, a lot of times we cut the quality before we reduce the scope. But if you reduce the scope, you can keep the quality very high. You can always go and add scope, but fixing technical debt's hard. That's true. Do you think that with a lot of those processes, uh, I mean, I'm not that 
that familiar with uh, Shape Up yet, but um, I'm familiar with it and, and, and I'm aware of it at least, but I haven't like looked into it too much yet. But I'm curious if the, in those types of scenarios where you have those six week, are you also, are those teams also responsible for the unexpected things that pop up? Like from bugs and other types of challenges that pop up in, in the course of the life cycle? Yeah, I mean, this is all going to be like extremely specific to each business, but in Basecamp's methodology, they're not unless like they have a, they have an operations team that manages some things. And then if it's a critical, critical bug, then yeah, otherwise bugs can wait. And I think that's generally a good philosophy to every, if every bug's important, then no bug is important. You know, if every bug comes in, it's like this one customer can't see this one button in this one situation. Well, that can wait, you know, unless that button is the checkout button and that customer has a cart of a million dollars, then it can probably wait. So with a couple of quick last questions for you, what non-software development related book do you find yourself most often recommending to people in the industry? It's a good question. I have quite a few books that I really like. I think the one that's most applicable to everyone is Atomic Habits. I really like that book by James Clear. Um, it was a lot of stuff that I kind of already knew, but it sort of solidified it and turned it into terms that I could talk about and think about, both about making and breaking habits. Um, it's it's like the single thing that led me to be able to finally start waking up at 4.15 in the morning. So that, I think, is probably number one. And number two would be, even though you didn't ask for number two, number two would be 4-Hour Workweek. As cheesy as the title is, it's a very good book. Yeah, I remember yeah, I read both of those books, and I, I appreciated both of them when I read them as well. So where can listeners best follow your thoughts on software development online? I don't honestly talk about software development too much. So if you want to talk to me about software development, Twitter is probably the best place. Um, you can find all my social media at, at trobrock, T-R-O-B-R-O-C-K.com. Um, I'm very active on YouTube. Uh, I do a lot of finance content there. Um, starting to do a lot more content around how, uh, how highly paid software engineers could get to that whole retire early thing much faster than they think they could. Great. I'll definitely include some links to that for, for the audience in the, in the show notes. Well, it's been such a delight having you on Maintainable, Trey. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Maintainable.